She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I don't like for people to go to prison when it's not absolutely necessary, but sometimes there ought to be an example. There needs to be a real clear accountability for things that have robbed other kids of the opportunity to go to college. And I think some of these people will get frog marched across the federal courthouse lawn. This is part of the continuing Russia investigation. We're not gonna just let all these fake news stories that were written about this investigation, about this hoax, that were lies, we're going to challenge every single one of them in court. We're just starting with Twitter. This is the most ridiculous display by the Democrats. They are very well aware that the Mueller report is probably going to be released soon, and it is going to show that the president did nothing wrong, the campaign did nothing wrong, as we have all said from the very beginning. So here they have to throw something else out there to distract people, to try and make the president look bad. And now, Stacey Washington. (laughs) Yeah, and they're trying, and it's not really working. Uh, I have this this is a funny story, actually, um, and we'll get to the phones here in just one second. Welcome back to the program here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We have this poll out that says Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is less popular than President Trump or Hillary. Uh, celebrity freshman Congresswoman AOC, not as popular as her many social media admirers would like you to believe. Recent polling suggests that she's pretty widely despised, even in her home state and even within her party. So, you know, never expect to hear any of that on CNN or MSNBC, but there it is. You know, and you know how I feel about the polls. You got to take it with a grain of salt. But does that kind of ring true to you a little bit that she wouldn't be as popular among the Democrats? Because she's sucking all the air out of the Democrat side. None of the other new freshmen who are in Congress who have a message and and a mandate to go there and do something. They don't get any airtime. They're never asked on any of the shows. It's just the three Three of them get all of the attention when there are, I think, 39 of them that are brand new. So, you know, anyway, let's go to the phones. We have Darius in North Carolina. Hey, Darius, thanks for calling in. Hello, Miss Stacy. How are you doing? Doing well. How about you? Pretty good. I uh, just want to sound. Uh... Oh, no. He must have a bad connection there. Um, so, he, and I'm not sure what his comment was, but. Um, so sorry about that. I, I think it's on his end instead of ours. So you might have seen this story out there earlier. And oh, wait, let me just give you the rest of the details on this AOC poll. Let's see. The last time that AOC's favorable rating was polled back in September of 2018, prior to her election to Congress, it was done by Gallup. 50% of respondents had no opinion or had never heard of her. That number has shrunk to 29% over the past several months. So only 29% of Americans don't know who she is or have never heard of her. 31% of Americans view her favorably. 41% view her unfavorably. And the more people get to know her, the more those numbers tend to skew in a direction that's not good for her. Uh, That, to me, is kind of indicative of the things that she's been out there saying. And this poll was conducted by the Siena College Research Institute in March and also found that large majorities of New York residents favored Amazon's now scuttled plan to build a second headquarters in Queens and thought that Amazon's decision to abandon the project is thanks in no small part to Ocasio-Cortez's aggressive opposition and that that was bad for New York. That's one way to tank your your favorability rating, destroy a bunch of $150,000 per year jobs, right? That's pretty interesting. Um, I think it's an interesting kind of dichotomy for her because she's a leftist 
she's a socialist. And the more that people get to know her, they realize she's outside of the mainstream. But they were sold a bill of goods. They were, you know, look, she's attractive. Look, she's, you know, she cuts a mean figure in these expensive suits. Look, she wants to, you know, get you using her lasagna recipe and drinking beer with her on the live streams. And she's talking about stuff that sounds really good. But, you know, sitting in Congress is not the same as doing a live stream on Facebook. Honestly, being an elected official, there's a lot of responsibility there. And I just don't see her as being up to the task. And so only time will tell if she's able to pull it off, actually able to create legislation. Aside from these viral moments she keeps creating where she asks the CEO of Wells Fargo about a pipeline that they didn't even help to fund. They didn't do the banking on that deal. She's asking him about it or trying to paint a bank, the banking industry as being responsible for oil spills or natural disasters when all they do is underwrite the loans. The responsibility for how the actual projects are executed and how they turn out lies with the people who borrowed the money. You can't, you, you can't be upset with the bank who loaned the money for a project, which on paper at the time before one shovel was pushed into the earth, the project was not only viable, but appeared on paper as all of the other loans that they make appear on paper to be sound investments. If they didn't go by acceptable practice and norms in the banking industry to with which to approve and deny loans, then they would constantly be making loans on projects that never come to completion and were never paid off and lots of defaults. We've seen where that leads us. So they can't use emotion or uh, you know, social policy from one political party or the other to be the sole basis by which they approve loans. And that's for any bank. It's not it's not because it was the Wells Fargo CEO. It's it's them trying to p- make people who have nothing to do with the outcomes responsible. It's the same with that lawsuit for I think it's the Sandy Hill Sandy Hook parents are going to be able to sue Remington, the maker of the gun that Adam Lanza used. Why? Why would we sue the gun manufacturer? Do we sue the maker of spoons when we get back from the doctor and we've been told our BMI is too high and we need to lose some weight? Do we do we sue the spoon makers? The 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 you know, no, we don't. We don't do that. So it's just crazy. Um so you might have seen the story. Devin Nunez is suing Twitter for $250 million. Um, I was kind of surprised to see this, quite honestly. He's also suing Liz Mayer. She's a Twitter uh, personality. She's also a, a consultant. She's a GOP consultant. Um, but yeah, l- let's listen to him describe what he's up to. It's number one. So this is the first of many, Sean, and what we're doing here is we're actually going after Twitter first because they are the main proliferator and they spread this fake news and the slanderous news. So if you look at the lawsuit, I think people can go and look at it on Fox News, uh, it's all there. But what we're, the case we're basically making is, is this was an orchestrated effort. Uh, so people were targeting me. There were anonymous accounts that were that were developed. And look, there's not supposed to be these accounts aren't supposed to exist. Twitter says that they don't have accounts that do this. So, like I said, this is the first of many lawsuits that are coming. But it but there were several fake news accounts, whether it was regard to the Russia investigation or to me. And we have to hold all of these people accountable because if we don't, our First Amendment rights are at stake here. This isn't 20 years ago, Sean. What's happening is is that 
is that Twitter becomes the gaslighting for all of the news. And when they're regulating us, they're regulating what people can see on my tweets, which they've done, and then they're, they're proliferating out things that they agree with, with the algorithms that they develop. They need to come clean. And so that I agree with him that they're doing they're doing wrong by certain Twitter accounts, but it's not so much that they need to come clean as they just need to stop doing it. They need to set up a system by which any person can check and see what their distribution is on Twitter. And they should just clean the algorithms out and only have the, the algorithm, the algorithms that they have in there should only be geared towards catching, let's say someone live streaming, shooting up a mosque. Can, so first of all, with all of the monitoring that Facebook does for conservatives, where they, they actually last week, they took one of my posts that I put up and they took the share button off of it. They made it so that it couldn't be shared because they didn't want people to know the content that I posted there. And it wasn't even like it's not wasn't from Stacy on the right dot com. It was just a story. And I put it on Facebook and people were commenting. It says cannot be shared at this time. Now, instead of them running all of those algorithms and having people monitoring that stuff, all, all of that should be suspended. Let the conservatives post what they want. They, you let the liberals post what they want. And then focus all of your energies on making sure that a, a deranged murderer can't live stream their carnage on your platform. Same thing with uh, Periscope and Twitter and, and all, of the, all of these platforms have these live stream capabilities. I mean, can you imagine how much more quickly they would catch that type of activity if they weren't engaging in the type of activity they're engaging in. It's like being distracted at, you know, anything that you're doing, if you're distracted, you're not only wasting energy on the distraction, but the energy that could be compounding that you would be spending on the primary uh, activity, that's wasted as well. So it's, it's more than one stream of energy waste that you're actually dealing with there. And, and it's the same thing for Twitter and these, these different social media platforms. But see, they don't, want, they don't want certain content going viral because then other people will hear it. And part of it is they don't want people, it, it goes viral and people get triggered. And they're like, I can't believe, like at Google when they were whining, I can't believe you said in order to have a family, you have to have children. Remember when, this may be a long time ago for some of you, but remember when, go in the way back machine, when once upon a time, if you were speaking to a group of people and you said, and then at some point, you and your spouse might want to start a family. And start a family meant that you would begin to have children. And nobody went crazy when people said that. They would just say, oh, isn't it great news? Jim and Sue are going to have a family. They're going to start their family. They're having a baby. And everyone nearby would just say, oh, that's so nice. Or if they didn't think it was nice, they would just keep on looking in the other direction and ignore it or whatever, you know, but no one got triggered. Now, if you say that people who are starting their family, in other words, people who are expecting a baby, they expect this or that from our service. That was the conversation that one of the uh, Google executives was having and everybody just lost their minds. The little liberals were like, you can't say start a family because you're insinuating by that, that anybody who doesn't have kids, but is in a family, we're not a family. So me and my same-sex partner, we're not a family because we don't have kids. Well, I don't think he was saying that at all. He was using the traditional definition of 
starting a family, which just means having kids. It's just a euphemism for getting pregnant and having kids. Um, but that's the kind of triggering that we have going on right now where you can't even say that. You can't even disagree with someone um, or, you know, you, you can't characterize one group as th- this group is not all bad. Essentially, this group's not all bad. By saying this group's not all bad, that means you conversely are saying every other group is bad. That is not true. But you can't say that because people are so tuned in to hear every little criticism. And, and haven't we all been there before anybody thinks I'm trying to lecture or getting uh, you know high and mighty? Haven't we all been there? I'll, I'll speak about myself. I have been at a place where after realizing, you know, I've, I've not done this, I've not done that. And then, you know, um, that then turns into a bit of sensitivity towards being criticized. And then if there's any criticism, it's like, wow, so I can't do anything right. I mean, who hasn't said that or heard someone else say that? No, the person criticizing doesn't mean you can't do anything right. They mean this one particular instance is something that they're wanting to do differently. If you're even keeled and everything's calmed out, then you that works. But if you're already riled up and looking for offense anywhere you can find it, you're going to find it. And that's what we see happening. It, we now have a whole generation of people who are primed and ready to be offended over any little thing, like somebody saying, oh, are you guys starting a family? We were already a family. Okay, I just was wondering. I thought you said you were pregnant. Never mind. <laughs> That's where we are right now. That's where we are. Or the fact that they have engineers over at YouTube who sit around and anytime a word, a, a trigger word, <laughs> a word that is on one of their blacklists, is uttered by someone who's doing a live stream, then they immediately suppress the distribution there so not as many people can see it. Or they remove the share buttons if you're discussing a certain topic. Or, um, I mean, there's there's so much stuff that they can do because remember, they know the technology inside and out. They've programmed it. It's their thing. It's the same as like, how you know your own kitchen or you know the contents of all your drawers. You know how to move things around to make them more conducive for you. You also know how to work things so they don't work for someone else. And it's the same thing here. You know, what's funny to me is there were some people watching the live stream of the massacre. And I don't mean funny, funny. I mean, funny, ironic. And Facebook feels like those people were responsible for stopping it. Not them. Because they were too busy watching shows like mine, trying to figure out what I'm talking about. All right, when we get back, we're going to have Marie Fisher from Project 21. Keep it here. Here's Walker Wildman for Redeem Clean Laundry Products. Not only do you get a great product and you get to obviously clean your clothes, get the stains out and use the multi-surface cleaner to clean your countertops and use the dryer sheets. You're doing all of this and the money's going to support the work of American Family Association. Redeem Clean Laundry Products were developed by AFA supporters Lynn Ingram and Jim Duncan to assist in funding the mission of the American Family Association. Redeem Clean products work as well as or better than other products on the market. They're environmentally safe, biodegradable, and they're made right here in the United States. The great thing about Redeem Clean is not only is the product great, but it goes to support a great cause, and that is the work of American Family Association. For clean laundry and a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. Visit redeemclean.afastore.net. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Last week I went to my doctor for a checkup and took my family out to dinner. My experience as a consumer was very different between the two. The restaurant had total transparency. The menu not only had prices of the items, but pictures of most of them. We knew exactly what we were getting and how much it would all cost. I even mentally calculated the tip before I received the bill. At the doctor's office, I had no idea what my procedures would cost. Even as the doctor was going over the tests that would run on my blood work, there was no mention of cost. I didn't know what I would have to pay until I went to the receptionist's desk and received the verdict. Fortunately for me, there was no sticker shock. The Trump administration wants to change some of this. At the moment, administrators are considering a rule that would require doctors and hospitals to disclose rates they negotiate with insurance companies. This would be a small step in the direction of health care transparency. Another problem with the healthcare system is the fact that someone else is paying for your medical procedures. If you go back to our family dinner, you can see the issue. If someone let us borrow their credit card and told us to have a nice dinner, we would probably spend most of our time looking at the left side of the menu. But when you pay for it, you also pay attention to the right side of the menu. Two years ago, I wrote about the major differences in cost for heart bypass in the county in which I live. One medical center in the area was charging more than $80,000 more for the same procedure others were charging. Getting some transparency is an important first step, especially since more and more of us are paying for health care procedures because of high deductibles. We expect to see prices on a restaurant menu. I think we should be able to see prices at a doctor's office and the hospital. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Oh, welcome back to the program. Don't forget to head over to urbanfamilytalk.com and check out the content there. You can also find Facebook pages for all of the good things. AFR, AFA, Urban Family, Stacy on the Right, all those cool pages. And if you're on Facebook still, you can hit the like button. <laughs> you can also go to americasvoice.tv. No, americasvoicenetwork.tv. Yeah. And uh, you can see the TV side of things, which is the live stream if you're already into watching live streams. Um, And we want to say thanks to our huge terrestrial audience that we have in uh, 36 states, I think it is. And um, just so grateful for you and for your listening and for the partnership with our ministry here. Right now, it is my pleasure to welcome Marie Fisher. She's a member of Project 21's Black Leadership Network. And um, full disclosure, I am too. I'm one of the co-chairs for Project 21. And she's joining us right now to talk about the White House higher education changes that are being made for more accountability and transparency for American parents and the students that they're helping to fund through college and adults who are attending college as well. Marie, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so it was really great to see you and meet you at CPAC. And, you know, after... We met, and I was flying home the next night after, after we, we'd had lunch together that day. I want to say way back that you and I met at like a networking thing. It was like a, almost like a happy hour type thing for moveonup.org. Did you ever go to any of those when you lived in Kirkwood? I did, probably back when I was in college. See, I'm trying to remember. 
Mm, uh, no, no, here. The, oh. That would have been in St. Louis. Um, he used to have them all over, but uh, I, I just keep thinking that I'd met you before that, that my first time meeting you wasn't at CPAC. Uh, probably so, because mm. I was there in St. Louis for about three or four years. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Possible we did. <laughs> I, I just want to say we did, but um, I have no way of knowing now, because you know how it is. It was so long ago. But I just it was great to get to spend some time with you and have lunch while we were at CPAC. And Marie was doing a round, just she was making the rounds with interviews, uh, talking about a number of subjects, which was fantastic. And here we are again. Um, and we're talking about the blueprint, which is our 57 point list of recommendations by Project 21. These are legislative policy proposals that we've presented to the White House that we're really excited about uh, the opportunity to see them adopt some of these things and and, you know, come up with their own policies that we, we don't care about the credit. What we care about is that these things get done because we feel like it'll help not just the black community, but America at large to see these changes made. Oh, definitely. I mean, so, I was so, honestly, I'm so impressed with the White House when they're actually trying to make college competitive, make colleges competitive, and they're asking for return on investment. Mm-hmm. We always say college and education is an investment into our future, but... If we were going to invest in stock or any portfolio, we would want to see the return on investment before we even sink money into it. But up to now, we don't ask that of colleges. We don't. In fact, what we do is we say, based on reputation or legacy, um, we say, you know, that's a good school. Or we know someone, you know, maybe our neighbor or a friend or someone, their kid goes there and they, they graduated and they did a good job. But what we really need to do is evaluate colleges and universities in an objective manner that gives us the ability to make a decision that's not based on emotions. Exactly. I mean, we, you know, every day, I remember one of the things that they're starting to do is if you look at graduation rates of a lot of colleges, some of them, even the ones that you think are really great schools, they're they're not up there. You'll see graduation rates from below 20, 30, and 40%. Like, would we want that on any investment? And why would we spend money? And some people are spending not only tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of dollars for an education, and you get nothing for it. Or it turns out the learning is not there where it needs to be. So let's talk about that for a second. What we found in research that we've done is that there are uh, longer lengths of time that it takes for people to graduate. Um, when So for historical black colleges and universities, we found that the graduation, it takes longer for students to graduate from there, which means they graduate with higher amounts of student debt, but it doesn't correspond to higher income after graduation. And, you know, that, and that's the biggest, I think, I don't want to say scam of it all, but sometimes you wonder, is this done on purpose in order to get more money out of the students or out of the family? And you, and you don't want to do that. After a while, if some people, if it takes too long to graduate, they're just going to stop altogether. So the money that they've spent is, I don't say wasted, but this money they spent, they will never get that return on investment. They don't get that degree. They don't get the, you know, high-paying jobs that they want. And then people wonder why people are getting so frustrated with colleges nowadays. So what has the Trump administration proposed to combat this? Because it's, it's not just a one, one or two families that are experiencing this. We're talking about millions of students who are kind of getting caught in this trap. Well, one of the things he's proposing is he's trying to get colleges to shorten the time that you need a degree. 
because many times, and what say first, I do work for a college. There's a lot of times you could go, say you go to one college, you spend two years getting all your core credits. Only if you transfer, all of a sudden, those core credits doesn't work. They'll say, no, you need to take the same class that you've taken. Might have a different name, might have a slightly little bit different title. So all of a sudden, you've got to take the same class again. You've got to pay more money. That extends the time for you to go to finish your degree. And one of the things he wants to do is to accelerate that. He's saying it shouldn't take, you know, five, six years to get a degree, especially if you're going at the path that the college actually sets out, that they stay true to that path. So one of my favorite chats that I've ever had with uh, an activist is Kevin Jackson was talking about, he said, when your kids get ready to go to school, if they're not going for a STEM field, and sometimes even when they are, look at their their list of uh, you know classes that they have to have for their graduation. He said you'll probably see about a third of them are non what he calls nonsense classes. So psychology, mm-hmm. like you don't need a class in psychology to do uh, you know information technology or computer science or or engineering. You don't need that, but they make you take it. Um, he he was mm-hmm. talking about different classes, and they're called electives. And sure, they help with the liberal arts experience, and there's nothing wrong with the classes. But if you really wanted to just get your degree degree in the career field, are those classes really necessary, especially when you have to pay for them? And the cost, you know, you think about maybe a third of the classes. If a third of the classes are elective and you didn't really need them to be able to do the job that you're going to get the degree for, that means you could have saved all of that money off of your student loan balance. And not only that, people don't realize everybody learns differently. And chances are, the majority of times, you'll have somebody who goes for a humanities degree is going to think completely different than someone who goes to a STEM degree. You know, I majored in mathematics. For me, trying to do an English paper or humanities, that was just gut-wrenching. Because, you know, back then at the time, I did not like to write. But if you give me math and science, anything that I would say very objective, I was very good at that. And usually when you have students going into STEM, that's what they're good at. Having them go through such classes as humanities or psychology or sociology, I understand it is for a rounding of a liberal arts degree, but is it really helping the student in the end? Are you just doing more burdens and more obstacles for that degree? And then when you say that, what is, what is going on with the, um, with the Trump administration's proposal to eliminate some of that? Specifically, what, how do they address that issue? The, the classes that you don't need, et cetera? Well, one of the things he does, and maybe it's not towards class you don't need, but he wants, he wants more Pell Grants to also go towards, like, technical schools. Because there's some students, you still can get a STEM education going to a two-year college where you might not have all the electives you need, all the electives that a four-year liberal arts college will require. But, you know, I work for a community college. They do have programs and certifications and such thing as game design, computer game design, or AutoCAD, or computer-based design. You can actually get a certification and get a job. You don't need to add the additional electives. And he's trying to push for them to offer Pell Grants for those. Mm. So a Pell Grant in a shorter time, that equals a lot less debt for students. And a lot sooner they're out into the workplace actually making a good salary and a good career. And, spe- and this would be specifically for um, 
these technical fields where you're talking about 18 months to 24 months and you're done with the, mm -hmm. the program, you have a certificate or an associate's degree, but you're ready to work at that point. Exactly. And some, for some students, that's all they really need. That's, and I've seen people who they just have, you know, for example, where I, where I work, they have a cybersecurity degree, a cybersecurity certification. They can take that and immediately go into a salary of sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, and that's without the two-year degree. That's without all the, I'm sorry, without the four-year degree, without all the student debt, and they're doing much better than say the four-year college student who went for a philosophy degree. Oh, definitely. And the other thing that I that sticks out to me about that is if they allow the Pell Grant for the shorter degree, the, the shorter length of time. Um, that means that students who maybe they just they kind of suffered a little bit. And we all know someone who either they have a kid like this or they themselves were like this, where you kind of suffered through high school. It was just rough. You know, mm -hmm. you, you just weren't into the schoolwork and the environment wasn't one that you enjoyed. And the thought of doing that for four more years, it just feels like you're going to toss yourself down a hole. But if you could say, I'm you know, I can take this degree program and be done in 18 months that's something they can see the end of and they're much more likely to do that and then come out and make a real living, you know, something that they can support themselves and not have to, I mean, I actually don't think it's a bad thing that some students go back home after college. I think in our culture, we place too much value on people leaving home, going to college and then immediately getting their own apartment or something like that. Some of these people aren't mature enough to do that. And some no. of them do need to go back home and I think culturally, we should be more accepting of these young adults staying at home, not as a permanent situation, but as kind of a right. launching pad, right. you know, kind of boomeranging back home and then launching from there. Um, other other cultures do that. I'm specifically thinking of people who come from here from India and Pakistan. Their families, they intentionally have their kids come back home when they're done with college. And then they actually decide from there whether they want to go on and get a Ph.D. Um, or a doctorate in something or if they want to join the workforce. And a lot of times when they come home, they bring their fiance, you know, they get married over that summer after graduation. And then they live at home with their parents and they save up enough money to get a down payment on a house. And so they never have they don't rent and they don't have these, right. you know, move into a condo. They just go straight into their first home as a couple and I, I know that's not what we do as Americans, but these families are coming here and they're doing that and they're very successful. Their kids are doing really well as young adults and they're, uh, they have a higher level of wealth attainment because they don't have that time where they're renting. Right. And it's also, when you look at it, it's also keeping the family together longer. So it's a total combination. If you look to keep the family together, they all work together. It's a unit longer and then they're all more successful. I mean, I know here in America we push for independence, but sometimes being at home helps boost that independence in the long run instead of just pushing people out. But like yeah. you're saying, I mean, I have a child who has Asperger's. For him, math and, math and science, he loves it. That's where he accelerates. He'll make A's all the time. Give him history and give him English, he'll make C's and D's. So for him, a two-year program doing, like I say, game design or cybersecurity, he will excel at it. He'll have a job, and he won't have any debt. In fact, I know it. In fact, I have a friend now. He went to a here in Frederick County. We have a 
program called CTC, Career Technology School. And what he did, he did the networking program, and he went immediately into a job. He didn't even go to college. He immediately went to the networking job. This kid is now making, he's just turned, he's like early 20s. He's already making six figures. Wow. No doubt. So these, these are the kind of success stories that we've heard from other guests on the program, Marie. And if you're just tuning in, we're chatting with Marie Fisher from Project 21 about the president's new, uh, he, this, this, is, uh, this is another area where he doesn't get any credit. And that is for him, he's always had a problem with the way colleges, um, not all of them, but some colleges set up their programs where it just it makes money for the college and the student is there for you know years and years but it's in the end it's not a good return on investment and i know some people are getting tired of this you know kind of business focus of president trump but i'm enjoying it a great deal marie because it it brings some sanity to situations that we know need some work and i think there's a lot of parents out there regardless of their political affiliation who would agree that we need some reforms in this area we do. We definitely do. And I mean, another another reform he wants to do is dealing with the accreditation. And he wants the accreditation to be based off of student performance or student outcome. Right now, accreditation is just done if the college meets certain criteria, and it could be anything, you know, from employees to how they teach something. But he wants accreditation to be based on student outcome. So if you have all these students who are doing well, if you have, like, 70, 80, 90% graduation rate, there'll be a better chance you'll be accredited than a college that has a 20 or 30% graduation rate. And mm. there are a lot of colleges out there. You actually can look on the you know federal government's website, the education website, you can see the graduation rate of colleges. In fact, they even tell you that when you're doing your financial aid, they will show you that. I don't think people pay attention, but I know I would not want my child going to a college that had a 20, 30, or even 40% graduation rate. Yeah, I think one of the things that, well, so we did that comparison with our daughter. It's actually my husband went to Forbes.com and pulled mm-hmm. up the compare. They have a list of all the colleges and they have a bunch of information on each one. But they have this really cool interactive thing that you can do, which is click on two colleges and then it'll set them side by side so you can compare them line for line, like student body population, graduation rate, et cetera. And it was very helpful for us in her making her final choice. You have been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Marie Fisher of Project 21's Black Leadership Network. Talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk again soon. We will be back with more right after these messages. More Stacey on the right up next. Have you ever met someone who seems to be exactly where they should be and in control of life in a way you only can imagine? Many of us spend our whole lives looking for that place, and it's only the one who made us who can tell us where we were created to be. And he has. There are six words in the Bible that answer our why am I here question. It's speaking of Jesus Christ when the Bible says all things were created by him and for him. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and you're going to have a big hole in your heart until you have Jesus. The sins of a lifetime have left us far away from the one we were made for, and that's why Jesus came and died for our sins 
to remove the wall between us and our Creator. If you want to know what that feels like and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, call us at 888-NEED-HIM or visit us online at chataboutjesus.com. The Christian life is a battle. A wise soldier puts on the whole armor of God so that he is able to stand against the wicked schemes of the devil. We can have victory over the enemy when we go into the battle, not dependent on our strength, but dependent on the strength of Almighty God. The Hour of Intercession with Joseph Parker, weekday afternoons at 1 Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Will Addison, director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time, to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. Media Minute with Howard Kurtz. After the horrifying massacre at two mosques in New Zealand that killed 50 people, some pundits went on the air and tried to link this in some fashion to President Trump. MSNBC's Joy Reid, Donald Trump's derogatory comments about Muslims and his refusal to condemn white supremacy have undermined America's moral authority when events like this in New Zealand take place. As CNN's Jim Acosta, tough questions about whether the president is emboldening right-wing extremism with his immigration rhetoric. NBC News analyst Ned Price, this is a president who has given plenty of rhetorical ammunition, I think, to terrorists like this. Now, it's fine to debate the president's comments on white nationalism and how he handled the New Zealand incident, but when you have these commentators tying, linking, questioning whether or not this tragedy on the other side of the world was somehow inspired by President Trump, I think it shows you something about the media's insistence on turning every single story into a Trump story. With your Media Minute, Howie Kurtz, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Pride goeth before a fall, and this is a pretty big fall for some of these people, especially um, a person who is claiming to be so ethical. And this is one of the most unethical and disgusting things we've seen in the way of a crime wave in a long time because it's people who are cheating a system and it's not just that they're cheating for their kids that's bad enough but they're cheating kids who needed a break who needed a chance kids that worked hard and tried and made the grades on their own and they're through their hard work but they didn't have parents who were shelling out bribe money and so therefore they didn't get to go to harvard or yale or usc And this is where we really, I mean, Governor Huckabee, you just heard there, Governor Huckabee talking about the Hollywood Hollywood college admissions scandal. And I think one of the things that uh, that really sticks out to me about the college admissions scandal is that these parents are trying to get around the things that are set up to make the college admissions process more equal. Now, you already have legacy admissions. And I always say, you know, people yell a lot about uh, affirmative action, which it, it, it's a thorny issue. Um, but there's also the issue of legacy admissions because 
yes, your parents' IQ definitely plays a role in your own IQ, but it doesn't mean that a naturally driven individual who graduated from Yale, that every one of their kids will be naturally as driven to be able to, you know, withstand the rigor of going to Yale University. But the legacy admissions process means that if your parent went to Yale, you can get in too. Now, you might go in there and make straight A's or, you know, really work hard and get get a great education. But not every child who has the ability to accept in a legacy admission is automatically deserving of that just because their parents graduated from there. But that's not something that anyone's looking at doing away with. So this Hollywood scandal is really the, uh, it epitomizes how some people say, yeah, you have to have these great test scores. And they didn't take the time to raise their kids to make those test scores, to make them make those grades. But they're saying, I still want my kid to get in there. And so I'm going to use my money and power and influence to get them in there. And what's it really, really something is that these two women, like the one lady, uh, and I, I get them mixed up. I think Lori Loughner is the mom who plays on all the Hallmark movies. So she's the Aunt Becky on Fuller House. I think that's, I think I'm getting that right. And then the other actress is the one who played Frasier's girlfriend on Frasier. She was the the mean, hard-hitting bank chick, and she was the, and yeah, that the two of them would actually go to jail? I mean, I just, I remember talking to my husband about it over the weekend. <laughs> he was, he was just, you know, he was talking about it. And I was standing there with my face just, he said, what's, what's, what's going on with you? And I said, I just can't believe these two people might go to jail. And he said, anybody can go to jail. I said, yeah, every, yeah, but I mean, these two people, like out of all the people in Hollywood, I thought might be involved in a scandal like this. These two people weren't even on my radar. And they thought that their money would insulate them, not only from prosecution, but just would insulate them, period. Like all they had to do was pay. They'd never be found out and that their kids would go to college. And the saddest thing about it is that the girls, I don't think really were that interested in going to college, not, not to get an education. They know they don't need it because they've got money. They know they don't need any of that. And so they don't have the ambition to, to go there and do a good job. But then there's also the issue of, um, they took slots from people who really worked hard. Can you imagine your dream is to go to University of Southern California, which it's a private school, by the way. I thought University of Southern California, for some reason, I thought it was a public school, like a state school, but it's not. It's a private school. It is world-renowned. It's, it's a big, you know, big time, hard to get into, really, really well thought of. I mean, you know, obviously they have a lot of liberals on there and a lot of snowflakes. But anyway, it's, it's a place where you say you went to the University of Southern California. People take notice of that. And so the, the girls took slots from other kids who probably did have great ACTs, SATs, great grades, volunteer service, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, that's the part that really, it shocks me because you would think these two actresses, they've been so blessed. You know what I mean? They've been so blessed. They've had just amazing careers in Hollywood, wonderful opportunities, um, you know, I'm, I won't comment on all of the things that the roles that they've played in. One of them has played Goody Two Shoes pretty exclusively. The other one, she's played the villain. You know, she's played in some some programming that is not as wholesome family wise. 
but they they've had a great a great run and they have taken advantage of the american dream by you know attaining wealth and doing whatever but in the end their wickedness is going to get the moms not the dads the moms might have to go to jail i mean did, i just i'm still really surprised that they went to all of this trouble over college which is optional especially if your parents are worth you know 50 or 100 million bucks, you don't have to go to college. And I'm not saying that because I obviously I, I think college is important for kids who that's in their future. I also think trades are important and really respectable for kids who are going into the trades and they're going to be their own bosses. That's important too. All of it, all of it is something that can be beneficial. We shouldn't all just try to take one tack. But I still, I'm still unable to really understand why they felt like they had to do this. It's not like they were in these hugely intellectual circles where everyone's kids were, you know, acing the ACT or the SAT and they were just worried that their daughters would be ostracized. Their kids were raised in Hollywood. So anyway, um, so I want to pivot over now. This is still in the educational realm, but this is an interesting development. It's local residents in Massachusetts, Newton, Massachusetts, and their taxpayers, obviously. And they filed a lawsuit accusing the Newton School Committee, Superintendent of Schools David Fleischman, Newton High School principals, and multiple high school history teachers of indoctrinating students with curriculum that is laced with anti-Semitism and bigotry against Israel. So over the course of the last several months, Americans for Peace and Tolerance, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, focused on promoting peaceful coexistence with an ethnically diverse America. They've been investigating anti-Semitic rhetoric in the curriculum of Newton schools, and they're now using information as the information they found as a foundation for a taxpayer lawsuit. The quote from uh, APT, Americans for Peace and Tolerance, here's their quote. We have identified precisely what is being taught and who is responsible. Now our investigation has become the basis for a taxpayer lawsuit based on the education and civil rights laws of Massachusetts. And they sent this statement in an email. We accomplished this through perseverance in the face of intimidation from the teachers union, successful appeals against the school's obstruction of the investigation with the Massachusetts secretary of state. And more importantly, with your generous support, it's a 469 page legal complaint that they filed last week detailing the lengthy history of Newton residents' efforts to have NPS address and correct the factually flawed teaching. So just in case we're wondering if they just first went straight to the law, they actually tried to address this on their own. They tried and tried and tried. The parents tried to have the Newton school district address their concerns, and they wouldn't, and so now they're suing. Now, one of the things that these textbooks are teaching is that Jews and Christians deliberately forged their holy texts to contradict the Muslim Quran. Another textbook instructed that Zionism has little connection to Jewish history in Palestine. Students were taught that Jews took advantage of the Holocaust to gain sympathy for Zionism at the expense of Arab plight and that Israelis were compared to Nazis amid claims that they've treated Palestinians 
like Nazis historically treated the Jews. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. So in looking for the sources of the anti-Semitic and anti-Israel bigotry in the curriculum, they discovered a few bad Apple teachers who view their teaching positions as giving them license to promote their personal political agendas. We're also looking closely at a common pattern with these politicized teachers. Most, if not all, have taken professional development courses developed with foreign funding by the governments of Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Newton history teachers and school administrators must think either that anti-discrimination laws do not apply to them or that these laws do not protect their Jewish and Israeli students. And that's according to APT President Charles Jacobs. There is no academic freedom to brainwash students with fake history and pro-Arab or anti-Semitic propaganda. That is these days alarmingly too common on the left in America. That's a continuation of the statement by Jacobs. Karen Hurwitz, who is representing the taxpayers in the lawsuit, said her clients are not seeking monetary damages despite the pain they feel as a result of students being taught materials that slander Israel and the Jews. She says this is the type of the material that leads to anti-Semitism. And she's right. And so that is what you have to do. They have this not-for-profit. It's funded by individual donations, and they're using that as a means with which to remove this repugnant material from their public school. And it's crazy that they have to go that far. They just keep reaching out and trying to work with the school district and getting pushed back. And so they said, you know what, we're going to do our own investigation and we're going to sue. And you know, they have some really good research that they've done and, and completed when they have a 496 page complaint. So, so be it. I, I, I applaud it. It is so important for people to take the next step. If you can't get it done by communicating with the school district, and some of us have just, you know, you feel like there's something going on in your school district that people just leave. Um, I don't think these people, they weren't willing to leave. They're will they wanted to stay. And so that's what they're doing. Um, so now I want to talk to you guys about listener stories. You got to call in for these. Um, we're gathering stories now to play during our April share and I'll be broadcasting this show from home base in Tupelo. Now, y'all know I like Tupelo. It's the cutest little town. And by little town, I mean, it's a good sized town. Like it's, it's a good sized town. It's nice, but I like it. I like going there periodically and I like hanging out with all of my peeps at AFR and urban because I get to see everybody talk, you know, we, we get to hang out a little bit and then we also get to do the show from there. So I'm really excited about that. Um, so the question we have for you is, has American Family Radio made a difference in your life? Have you ever been there like in a place and some programming here helped you? That's what we want to hear from you. Uh, if we've ever given you the right thought at the right time or the right message at the right time or maybe a piece of news or information that was really applicable to something that you're working on or, or in your life, we'd love to hear about that. We want to hear your AFR story. It could be a blessing and encouragement to others and it'll bless us. All the people you hear on the radio here, we'd love to hear these stories because it really blesses us. So call and share for a minute or two, and you might hear yourself during share which is so cool. The listener storyline is 877-876-8893, 877-876-8893. And when you do that, leave a minute or two, you know, so keep it pithy. 
Um, but definitely share. And you might hear yourself on the air during share in April. And it's going to be so fun. Um, share this year. I'm looking forward to it. I'm bringing one of the kids down with me. So we're going to have a good time. <laughs> so it's going to be pretty fantastic. Um, so I wanted to see, let's, let's just, I'm just checking. Okay. Yeah. Victor Davis Hansen. So you might know him. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And for me, this is one of my kind of bucket list interviews that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm, I, I respect him greatly, his writing, his work. I've played audio clips of him in other interviews before on the show. It's going to be no different tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to be all ready to go to ask him about his new book. The new book that he's just written, it's called The Case for Trump. Actually, what's interesting about that is that um, we're reading The Case for Trump this month because it's our book club book for next month. So, yeah, it's going to be really fantastic to speak with him. And I encourage you to be here for that, for that interview. Um, listener storyline, 877-876-8893. And we will be back uh, with him tomorrow. We'll be covering a few, you know, hot hot news stories as, as always. And I encourage you to go over to stacyontheright.com and hit the subscribe button. We would love that. And um, yeah, God bless you from the heartland. Citizens, enjoy your evening. Be back with you tomorrow.